Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The Supreme Court seems poised to strike down Roe versus Wade. This after a draft opinion from one of the most conservative justices was leaked. So what happens if the court follows through? Will women be able to get abortion services? We'll examine the myriad of what-ifs, including a look back to see what it was like for women before Roe was decided. Plus, is the court out of step with public opinion? Exactly how do Americans feel about the abortion issue? We'll hear from a polling expert on that question. And how will such a decision affect the midterms, especially those races here in Washington state? Finally, what does corporate America think? Some companies are already jumping into the fray. All of that coming up. But first, joining us now is Ike Jachi, correspondent for ABC News in Washington, D.C. And the debate in Congress is something that has really heated up over the last six, seven days. And it looks like Chuck Schumer in the Senate is going to call for a vote this coming week. But isn't this already a predetermined loss? Don't we already know the outcome here? We really do know the outcome. And we know that the Senate isn't poised really to take any dramatic uh, decision based on where it's coming from, giving the 50-50 tie. Nevertheless, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that he wants every lawmaker to be on the record for their vote on abortion rights for women. Now, Democrats, they've pledged to take swift action ever since that leaked draft opinion showed the Supreme Court is likely to overturn Roe versus Wade. But the reality, like I said, it's going to be an uphill battle due to the 50-50 chamber. And Democrats, they simply don't have those 60 votes needed to overcome that expected filibuster. But here's the thing. This isn't new territory. The party has already experienced this. That's when the Women's Health and Protection Act was brought to the floor. Now, that bill cleared the House of Representatives last September. But in the Senate, Uh, Leader Schumer, he failed to get even the entire Democratic caucus on board when he tried to start debate. But that legislation not only would have codified Roe, it would also ban the requirements some states have already put into place related to abortion care. So such things as waiting periods and mandatory doctor visits before procedures. Uh, Republicans said that that was too broad and they didn't like it and they obviously didn't have the vote. So here we are again with a renewed emphasis due to this leaked draft opinion. And there's not necessarily a timeline, but we do know that coming in June, the Supreme Court will make its decision based on that Mississippi case and could likely overturn Roe versus Wade. So is this all a party line vote? Because we know that Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, he is pro-life, but Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, is pro-choice. That's the thing. Um, Senators Joe Manchin, again, could play a key role in trying to get another agenda from the Biden administration. But Like you said, the Democrats do have a chance to get some bipartisanship, and that's two GOP senators that may actually side with the Democrats. That's uh, Senators Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. The thing is, though, they have their own uh, proposal to codify Roe in their bill called the Reproductive Choice Act, it would prohibit states from imposing an an undue burden on the ability of a woman to choose to terminate a pregnancy pre-viability. But it also allows states to keep other restrictions in place. Essentially, their bill would fall in lines to the status quo right now. Whatever is going on right now would stay in place. Uh, That's their bill. 
even considering that one, that still wouldn't get the Democrats enough of those votes, the 60 vote threshold needed to pass any kind of meaningful legislature that would uh, uh, codify uh, Roe. That idea of codifying Roe is is something that I think a lot of people don't understand because all of this has been based on case law in Roe versus Wade. There's nothing in the United States Code, nothing passed by Congress that gives people the right, gives women the right to have an abortion. Exactly, which is why you're seeing all these challenges, these challenges from the states for the past several months, from Texas with that 15-week ban to as recently as Oklahoma banning the procedure altogether. Right now, there are 26 states, 22 of which have something called trigger laws that as soon as Roe versus Wade is overturned would completely pass laws that will put certain restrictions, if not all restrictions, on abortion. You're seeing this push right now to really try to uh, make it the law of the land. Uh, codifying Roe versus Wade would, in fact, secure the right for a women's choice for an abortion all across the land. It wouldn't be left up to the interpretation of the court, which is what in the case of uh, Roe versus Wade, which you've been dealing with for the past 50 years. So here, instead of a, ch- a legal challenge to Roe, uh, actually codify- codifying this into law uh, throughout f- through Congress would in fact enable that that right for women and establish that nationwide. That's why you're seeing this push right now. However, it's a push that's likely not to succeed. But isn't that sort of the basis of what we saw in that 98-page draft opinion from Samuel Alito, that this is something that Congress should litigate, not the courts? Yes, he said this should be left up to the states. However, the main argument is is that this is a human right, not necessarily a right that should be legislated legislated through 50 of the states. Uh, a lot of the, the a lot of Democrats, a lot of women's group, a lot of abortion rights uh, uh, supporters saying that this is a human right, not necessarily something that should should be legislated through a, a governing body. Which is why uh, you're seeing this uh, this push right now, not necessarily taking out of the hands of lawmakers and really trying to establish the fact through, obviously, the legislature that, no, this is a, a right that shouldn't be left up to the states. This is a right that should be granted uh, nationwide. And of course, uh, abortion opponents would argue that the right of the unborn child is also something that needs to be considered as well. Uh, this is not a debate that's going to go away anytime soon. And in fact, I would venture to guess that Chuck Schumer, knowing the outcome of the vote, calling this vote for the Senate in this upcoming week, it's an election year, and he's trying to preserve that Senate majority, and he wants to put those Republicans that are pro-life on record. That's exactly what this vote will do, because six months from now, millions of Americans will be taken to the polls in these midterm elections. And we've seen by recent polls, ABC News, Washington Post poll, that a majority of Americans want Roe versus Wade. They don't want to overturn that landmark decision from the 1973. 28% of Americans are in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. That's an astonishing minority. A majority of Americans want that codified, uh, and a majority of Americans want abortion rights in some way, shape, or form over 80% of Americans. So you're seeing right now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wanting every single person to put their name on the line to show exactly who is for abortion rights and you know who is opposed to abortion rights. And of course, that will play heavy in every single race you see coming up from here all the way up until November in the midterms. All right, Ike Jachi from Washington, D.C., thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, the justices may have their opinions, but what does the American public think? 
We'll talk to a polling expert when this special edition of the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. As we continue to dive into the issue of Roe versus Wade and that bombshell leak on Monday in which Justice Samuel Alito drafted an opinion of the court that would strike down abortion rights in this country. But what does the public think? Joining me now is Scott Clement. He is the polling director for The Washington Post. And this is something that you guys have been polling on, I'm guessing, since Roe v. Wade back in 1973. So what's public opinion look like now? Well, in some ways, uh, public opinion has been very stable for the past three decades. Roughly six in 10 or just under six in 10 say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Um, it's been in a pretty tight range in over 33 polls since 1994, 1995. Other questions have changed somewhat. And one thing that's also been constant is that uh, people's attitudes toward abortion uh, shift really depending on the circumstance as well as the time during pregnancy. So those are a uh, important caveat. And what are some of those shifting numbers? I mean, obviously, I'm guessing there's more support for, say, abortion in the first trimester as opposed to the third. You're absolutely right. Our poll didn't measure that specifically, but many others have. And you generally find a consistent majority uh, supporting uh, allowing abortion during the first trimester with a majority opposing it in the second and third. Um, You know, one of the other big ones are Uh, The kinds of exceptions uh, that are often in laws that uh, prohibit abortion, Um, for instance, uh, 82% of Americans in our poll say uh, that abortion should be legal when the woman's physical health is endangered. 79% say this should be legal when uh, the pregnancy was caused by rape or incest. Evidence of serious birth defects is also one where a clear majority say it should be legal. So uh, not all of the new laws that have been passed in states challenging Roe have all of these exceptions. Usually it's one or two. And of course, one of the favorite terms of pollsters is crosstabs. What are we looking at? I, I, I imagine there's overwhelming support for abortion rights on the Democratic side, not so much on the Republican side. Sure. So just, you know, on the base question of whether abortion should be mostly illegal, mostly illegal, uh, it's 58 percent overall who say it should be legal, that rises to 79% among Democrats, uh, dropping to 33% among Republicans. Independents are in the middle at 62%. You know, you see a a similar breakdown on question of Roe, though it's imbalanced. So 75% of Democrats say the Supreme Court should uphold Roe. 44% of Republicans say it should be overturned, uh, which is just slightly more than the share who say it should be upheld. Republicans are more resolute in saying abortion should be illegal than supporting overturning the long-term precedent. Whether it's Republican or Democrat, pro-life or pro-choice, do we have a sense of how much of the electorate votes on this single issue? Well, from election to election, it usually ranks fairly low uh, on the question uh, when people are asked if it's the most important issue in their vote. Um, there are exceptions to that. You know, certain certain groups, white evangelical Protestants or evangelical Protestants generally tend to say abortion matters more in their vote. Um, but it, it's a it's a lingering issue. It's also one that people have complex opinions on, and it's very easy for a political leader or a party to get on the wrong side of a big majority of Americans on the issue. So it sort of lurks in the background. 
but it can become a really potent one. And there's a real potential for that this year. When was the last time we saw this as a central issue in an election, whether it happened to be a House race, a Senate race, governorship or that sort of thing? Because in my recollection, abortion really hasn't been a major campaign issue since the early 90s. Yeah, you're generally right. Um, you know, certainly from a national election standpoint, it hasn't been a big issue. I think it mattered in some ways. Uh, if you look back to uh, uh, Donald Trump's first presidential run, he was very emphatic in saying that in supporting abortion restrictions, and it was Im- important in winning the support of some evangelical leaders that were really critical for you know coming on board with a candidate who wasn't very religious. Uh, and had had espoused many socially liberal views earlier in his political career. You know, on the more sort of edge case territory, there was a Missouri, uh, I think it was Missouri Senate candidate, Todd Aiken, uh, who, who um, you know, ended up making claims, uh, really saying that, you know, he was skeptical about um, about allowing uh, exceptions for rape or incest and, and whether those those claims were legitimate. Uh, that ended up really becoming a problem for him. And, and he and he lost the race partly because of that. So uh, there, there's 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 real potential. This is probably the year, though, where if it, if it matters, it probably matters this year. So we're going to have a really good sense of that. If the Supreme Court indeed overturns Roe v. Wade, um, it has it, people will be reacting to a very high profile court decision and it has implications for the fall. And I would imagine that would benefit Democrats a little bit more because it would galvanize the left. I think that's one possibility. Uh, our poll found that Democrats have a modest advantage on trust to handle abortion. So they may see a, a some benefit if voters are more focused, focused on that issue. Um, at the same time, you know, as you mentioned, this doesn't happen a lot. So we don't have a lot of examples of this type of issue coming to the fore. And it's not just going to be the Supreme Court. It's going to be about how states react to it, what kind of uh, laws and ballot initiatives states propose, uh, as well as, um, you know, what what candidates and parties say is the reason for going to the polls to express your opinion on this issue. Right now, Congress really isn't in a position to make a lot of laws on uh, this issue. And Congress is one of the big uh, prizes this fall. So it, it seems like there's a majority of Americans that support abortion rights. I and mean, if the Supreme Court strikes it down, they will be going against popular opinion. Now, the Supreme Court, by its design, isn't supposed to shift with popular opinion. But what are Americans' views on the high court right now? Well, <laughs> you know, whatever I would tell you what their views are, I think it'd be better to ask in a couple weeks. Uh, because uh, public opinion on the court has uh, confidence has generally declined over the past couple decades, but it also has yo-yoed in response to high-profile court rulings in pretty predictable ways. Uh, you know, after uh, the court has sided with a liberal point of view or uh, upheld, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act, for instance, it it tends to lead to a drop in approval rating for the court among people who disagree with the decision. Now, the court has, has become more conservative overall, but it still has granted wins and losses to both conservative and liberal causes, and, and public opinion has reacted accordingly. So, as overall, long term, it's hard to say how this this um, opinion will affect views of the court. If the uh, the court indeed overturns Roe, it very well may lead to a drop in approval among Democrats. But those has, those have generally proven temporary. How important is the court's legitimacy in the public's view? Well, it's a good question. I mean, the court can go ahead and and make its rulings. 
um, and it doesn't necessarily uh, need public opinion. It doesn't get need to get reelected in order to maintain its positions. At the same time, it's one of those few American institutions that has held on with high confidence uh, uh, from the public. Uh, unlike Congress, for instance, uh, or really many part, many other institutions in America, including the media, have, have lost confidence. So um, any time that that is lost, it can have unpredictable results. And um, certainly it's something that the court and uh, the court itself cares about. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts has made that very clear. And I guess the last thing before we let you go, looking into your crystal ball, you see all these numbers over the course of the years. Uh, Where do you see Americans going with this, whether it's opinion of the court, opinion of the abortion issue? Are we expecting any kind of a change? I can't really predict a change. But I, I, I am expecting some reaction. Opinions have been stable for a long time, but there hasn't been such a big policy shock as overturning Roe v. Wade. And it's going to lead to a lot more robust debate about policies at the state level. And I don't mean a sort of uh, you know staid and calm uh, debate. I think it's going to bring out a lot of passions Uh, for both supporters of abortion uh, rights as well as those who seek to restrict it. All right, Scott Clement, polling director for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Pleasure to do it. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, what was it like for women before Roe versus Wade was decided? We'll take a look at history and examine how things might be different this time around when this special edition of the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela as we continue diving into the issue of Roe versus Wade. As this past week, the United States Supreme Court seemed to signal that they were going to overturn the nearly 50-year-old precedent in a leaked draft opinion written by conservative Justice Samuel Alito. We wanted to take a look at what it was like before Roe to see what it may be like if that precedent is overturned. Joining me now is Ann Brannigan, who wrote about this for the Washington Post. And I guess uh, the first question I would have is, how dangerous was it before Roe? Because medical technology wasn't nearly advanced, and you had this patchwork of state laws where the conservative ones banned it, and as a result, you had unsanctioned or what critics deride as back-alley abortions. Right, so... Yeah, the pre-Roe landscape um, is really marked by a lot of restriction. And I think we take for granted what those restrictions look like because we haven't really lived under them in the last 50 years. Um, but in terms of how dangerous it was, it was dangerous on several levels. One, women um, couldn't really rely on being able to access contraception necessarily in the way that they do now. So, for example, you know, the state of Massachusetts at the time that Roe was decided in 1973, you know, in in the years running up to that, they actually it was actually illegal to dispense or sell contraception. Right. And so there was very limited choice depending on where you lived. So, you know, if you lived in New York in 1970, you could access a safe abortion. Um, But that wasn't really an option for many other people. And so I spoke to one um, retired physician who was in med school at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland in the 1960s. And what she reported was seeing, you know, on a routine basis, septic abortions, which are um, when someone comes in after, you know, after uh, attempted or completed abortion 
and they're infected from it. And so this was relatively common. She said it was so common that, you know, if a young woman came into the hospital with fever and chills, um, they would have to rule out whether a septic abortion could have been the cause. I remember one, I believe it was a nurse practitioner I spoke to who um, mentioned that her mentor had talked about how on Monday morning, it would take hours to deal with the patients who had come in from over the weekend who had attempted to terminate their pregnancies. So what about enforcement back in the day in the states that banned abortion? Did we see women being jailed as a result of uh, having an abortion or doctors being jailed for performing the procedure? So that is actually a bit less clear. And I think that's maybe something where pre-Roe and, you know, a potential post-Roe future could look very different. Because the kinds of laws that we're seeing now, so for example, Texas's law, right, which would institute what's essentially a bounty for folks to report people who seek abortions or providers who give abortions or anyone who aids and abets in this kind of care. We didn't see that kind of law pre-Roe. Maybe folks didn't consider it necessary because the state of play with regard to abortion access was so scattered. And that's not the case now. What I'm hearing, particularly from abortion rights advocates, is this potential of, you know, criminalization and this potential of being jailed and imprisoned for seeking an abortion, this is really an element that has escalated and is quite different from what we've seen before. Although I will say, historically, there have been cases where prosecutors have attempted to bring charges against women for ending their pregnancies, but this was very scattered and, you know, it wasn't necessarily commonplace. If the U.S. Supreme Court shuts down Roe or overturns the precedent, what are we expecting to see in, in these states? Is I, I would imagine there's going to be a lot of celebration among the those in the red states, not so much in the blue states. We've already seen some states, including ours here in Washington, where they're saying uh, upwards of 500 percent increase in abortion procedures happening as people come in from other locations where the procedure's banned. Right. So we're really looking at a very messy post-row future if and when it does happen. So to your point, folks are already preparing for abortion care providers in states where this will continue to be legal and where this will be protected. They're anticipating being overwhelmed as they not only meet the needs of people in their state, but in surrounding states that will not have this kind of access. So that's one element of it. I do think a key difference here, and of course, there's cause for abortion rights advocates to be alarmed. But one thing that is a notable difference is there is a really big difference in terms of the kind of abortion care that's accessible now. So, for example, there's medical abortion um, and we are seeing you know, people turning to mailing abortion pills, which are safe and effective up until 10 weeks of pregnancy. And so from what I've been hearing, folks do not anticipate the same sort of level of, say, septic abortions as pre-Roe because there are more options and ways that people can self-manage abortion safely. That, and that wasn't necessarily the case in, say, the 1950s or 1960s. The really sort of overarching theme here, and I think one that will be that is consistent pre-Roe and post-Roe, 
is that the ability to access an abortion will rely almost entirely on your place in society. You know, whether you have the networks, whether you have the contacts, whether you live in a place that has protected this kind of care. And so we are going to see that people without means are going to be the ones who are going to be most impacted by this. The final thing that we wanted to talk to you about was this idea of the religious nature of this fight. The evangelical Christian community really kind of glommed on to the Roe v. Wade ruling post-1973, and it, it became a rallying cry to elect conservative Republicans. Did we see the same thing pre-1973? I think the conversation before Roe certainly was about, you know, the responsibility of a woman being to be at home, to take care of the family, to bear sort of the brunt of the responsibility of whether she got pregnant or not. What we saw was, um, in a lot of cases, you know, young women being forced into early marriages because of an unplanned pregnancy. And undergirding this, of course, is this religious belief of when life begins and additionally of what a woman's sort of moral and ethical responsibility is, you know, in these cases. But one thing that has changed over, I'd say, you know, the last few decades is even though this anti-abortion activist, like it's really been fueled by, you know, white evangelicals, Advocates have really sort of moved away from the religious argument a bit, even though it is very strong still. They have really turned to science as their basis for arguing against abortion. So, for example, you know, arguing that because of medical technology, fetuses can really, you know, survive outside of the womb at earlier stages and therefore Roe is considered obsolete. Um, you know, they point to expanded contraceptive access as a reason why Roe is obsolete. In recent years, they haven't relied as much on the religious argument as they have on some of these other arguments. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Ann Brannigan with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. We have to take another break, but still to come, how does the potential of striking down Roe v. Wade affect Washington's congressional and legislative races? More so than you'd probably think when this special edition of the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Obviously, the bombshell ruling, or I should say draft ruling, that was leaked from the United States Supreme Court is still our major topic this week. And it, of course, is an election year. So we figured we'd take a look at how this potential change in federal law over abortion would affect some of the upcoming races in Washington state. Joining me now is Paul Query of the Washington Observer, longtime Associated Press political reporter down in Olympia. And first off, the 8th District was already going to be an interesting race. It's getting a lot more interesting now that we've got Roe versus Wade on the table. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, Jeff. Republicans really wanted that race to be about inflation and $5 gasoline. And now it's, you know, it's going to be about this. There's three at least three Republicans in the primary. The sort of biggest name there is Reagan Dunn, um, who is the son of former um, GOP rep Jennifer Dunn. And like mom, Reagan Dunn is pro-choice. And his opponent, Matt Larkin, in the primary was a Republican candidate for attorney general. And he's 
pro-life, uh, anti-abortion rights, however you want to you want to phrase that. And so that gives Republican primary voters that choice in, you know, in this election, in this context, which is probably a little more, you know, interesting and important than it was a few days ago. Well, Reagan Dunn, I, I think the, the conventional wisdom was he kind of had that one of those top two spots locked up. He is the biggest name in that race, challenging Kim Schreier. But now does he run the risk being pro-choice of losing that party base and maybe losing the primary election and, and, and not making it to the general? I think it makes it more competitive. And, you know, I have to remember that Matt Larkin ran for attorney general as a Republican last year. And while he lost pretty badly statewide, he did really well in the eighth. People have looked at him out there and kicked the tires on him and liked what they saw. So maybe this changes things. Certainly, if I'm the Democrats, I'm happier to see Matt Larkin in the general election than I am to see Reagan Dunn for you know exactly that reason, because that's a clearer race for Democrats if you've got a pro-life candidate on the Republican side. Does this potential ruling, or if the Supreme Court ultimately throws out Roe versus Wade, does that help or hurt Kim Schreier? I think that... That helps Kim Schreier because I think it's going to animate a really significant base of the Democratic Party, pro-choice women. And I think that you'd find it, especially in the suburban parts of the 8th District, that there are a lot of pro-choice women. The other interesting race when it comes to the congressional district is the third, and that is Jamie Herrera-Butler down in the, the suburban Portland area in southwest Washington state. How does the potential ruling affect her race? So Jamie Herrera-Butler is an abortion opponent, and she's ended off a Democrat, pretty strong Democrat in each of the last two elections. And this year, most of her troubles are on on the right, um, she's got a Trump-backed opponent in Joe Kent and another candidate to her right named Heidi St. John, who has support of a lot of the kind of conservatives in Clark County. And so that's sort of generally considered where her, you know, her troubles were going to be. The interesting question for me is whether this gives the Democrats some more leverage if one of the Democrats gets through. There's no real name in that race. I'm told that some Democratic activists are pretty high on Marie Glusenkamp Perez, who's an unknown candidate. It's got kind of an interesting life story. She and her husband run an auto repair business. Right now, there's no Democratic money in that race to speak of. And the conventional wisdom is that we won't see any unless Herrera Butler loses in the primary. But with this issue on the table, you know, maybe they'll take a flyer on it. And as you write in the Washington Observer, it helps Patty Murray in her race, but not that she really needs it. Yeah, I mean, I think traditionally this issue has played out mostly in races for the U.S. Senate because the Senate gets to approve um, Supreme Court nominees. It's helped Democrats fend off Republicans for the last 22 years um, in those Senate races. Uh, Tiffany Smiley, who's a Republican challenging Murray, tried to do what I think of as the Dino Rossi finesse on this issue, which is to say that she was personally that she's personally opposed to abortion, but that the matter settled law in Washington. That almost worked for Rossi when he ran for governor in 2004, but it didn't work for him when he ch challenged Patty Murray in 2010. And I think that the this ruling, if it comes through, is going to fire up progressives in greater Seattle, and that's just going to pad Murray's win. What about the state legislature? Is this going to affect uh, any of the races there? So there are a handful of close races in the state legislature. Democrats kind of face that same high inflation, $5 gasoline, broad discontent. 
um, going into this election cycle. And I think that they're probably hopeful that this issue will give them something that kind of fires up the base and turns out voters who don't ordinarily vote in an election where the president and the governor aren't on the ballot. Any particular races? Because this is not really a state issue yet, but if Roe versus Wade is overturned and that draft ruling or some version of it is what is held by the court, then it very much becomes a state issue. And there, you know, and there are definitely candidates in the race. The the one who jumps out at me is first term state senator Emily Randall, who's a Democrat who represents the Kitsap Peninsula. And she is a big abortion rights activist. She sponsored a bill to strengthen abortion rights in Washington state in the last year. And she's running against uh, Representative Jesse Young, who is one of the House members from her district, who is one of the strongest opponents of abortion in the legislature and has been he's been the sponsor of several anti-abortion bills over the years, which have gone nowhere. She's already kind of has been messaging that on the campaign trail before and really kind of doubled down on that messaging now. So is this election year going to be about the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade? Is this going to be the central issue that permeates all the races? It'll be interesting to see that. Certainly on both sides of the aisle, there are a lot of people who vote primarily on this issue. Um, They're single issue voters on the issue of abortion. Whether that swamps you know, $5 gas and high single digit inflation and homelessness and the war in Ukraine and various other um, things that are kind of swirling around. You know, it's hard to know. I mean, people are super fired up about it right now, obviously. Um, Whether that sustains itself to November and drowns out all those other issues, hard to know. We haven't had this kind of thing happen. You know, this issue has been largely off the table for decades. All right, Paul Query with the Washington Observer. Thank you so much for your time. I'm happy to be with you. We have to take one final break, but still to come, corporate America jumping into the debate over abortion with at least one major Northwest company saying it will help its employees to terminate a pregnancy when this special edition of the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to this special edition of the Northwest Politicast as we examine the issue of Roe v. Wade and the potential of the Supreme Court striking it down. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Taylor Van Sice. The social and medical impacts of ending Roe v. Wade are well known, but the impact on corporate America could be significant. As Todd Frankel reports in the Washington Post, companies like Amazon, Apple, and Salesforce are already offering to help workers move or travel because of restrictive laws. And Todd joins us on the Northwest Newsline. Todd, multinational and cross-state businesses really rely on consistent federal laws to help them you know, implement consistent policies for the workforce. What kind of a logistical problem would overturning Roe present to American businesses? It would uh, present a mismatch of uh, abortion laws across the country, and we're already sort of seeing that play out um, with a restrictive abortion law that Texas implemented last year, um, and that, that led you know, major corporations um, like Amazon and Apple to say, hey, if you um, are a worker of ours in the state of Texas, we will pay to fly you out so you can have um, reproductive health services that you need, um, which is kind of a, a strange thing for a company to do. And, you know, if Rogue is actually overturned, um, we'll see that expand nationwide where huge swaths of the country will um you know, have a different level of care than the rest of the country. It's, it's, it's not a good situation for corporate America. Could this impact future investment in some states? And by that, are businesses likely to be swayed by the demands of their workers when they expand? Yeah, you know, we saw this play out in um, states like Indiana when they passed uh, a law that 
some said used to discriminate against uh, gays and lesbians. Um, and companies said, you know, like Salesforce said, you know, uh, we're not going to invest there. Other companies um, said the same. And, and so the actually they watered down the law in Indiana. And we could say the same thing with, uh, you know, if, you know, Texas and certain states like Missouri, you know, decide to uh, ban abortion in those states, companies could say, you know what, that's not a good environment for us. Um, you know, companies are uh, being pushed more and more to take um, positions on these, some of these social issues that affect their work, that affect their customers, that affect their shareholders. Um, and so this could play out in ways that I don't think anyone's really sort of sorted out yet. Well, that's right, because if we remember the Black Lives Matter marches or even the January 6th attack, companies, because of their employees or their customers, they had to take a side uh, for the sake of, of those people. Are they going to have to pick a side on abortion now? I think there'll be a lot of pressure, right? I mean, it's going to be very hard for companies to, you know, sort of uh, say, you know, we support our workers, we support women, you know, we support equity in the workplace and, you know, to not speak out or have a position on this really hot topic, Um, you know, and you're going to have it from both sides, right? So a company that says we're going to fly employees out of the state, which is kind of a crazy notion so that they can get an abortion, right? They're going to have pushback maybe from conservative um, employees who say, you know, this is an end around around a state law. I don't agree that we should be spending funds on this. And, you know, it's it's really something that I think, you know, a corporate America, you know, doesn't really want to have anything to do with this topic. But, you know, they're going to have a very hard time avoiding it. It's going to be interesting to see how this how this plays. Todd Frankel with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for The Washington Post. And you can find the story online at WashingtonPost.com. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at NWNewsRadio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.